I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hello, Dr. Nutty Purim here. Dude, I used my last name. What the hell? Who, who is this Nutty Purim fellow? <laughs> you go ahead and cut that if you want to. Dr. Santos here, a pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And if Dr. Josh decided to take out the uh, previous 15 seconds, you don't know why I'm laughing like an idiot right now, but yeah. But if he didn't, feel free to stalk him on, on the Instagram and Google. God damn it. We do love those comments, questions, and feedback. As close and personal as you can make it for Dr. Blankety Blank. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm fairly sure. I, I don't know, but I think I'm the only Dr. Santosh pediatric infectious disease doctor in the nation. So I, I think you could go with like just those two criteria, but all right, if y'all want my last name, you have it now. That sounds like pretty vital information, Santosh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and as long as we're talking about vitals. Oh, fucking segue. What are the vitals? When, when we in medicine talk about the vital signs, I mean, I feel like the average person feels like shouldn't everything be rather important, but just like <laughs> Animal Farm, some numbers are more equal than others. So, <laughs> when have you played? Uh, sorry, I heard I, you said Animal Farm. I thought I heard Animal Crossing. Um, <laughs> uh, that would be a very different version of that game. Yes, yes, indeed, but. Santosh, what are the vital signs? So vital signs are uh, those metrics that you can use to tell if a patient immediately within the span of 
two seconds is doing well or are they doing critical? So you can immediately categorize them. So these are the most important functions of keeping a person alive right then and there. It is breathing. Okay. So can you take in air? Can you send that air to your bloodstream and, uh, you know, pump it around your body, you know, to supply everything. So that's heart rate and blood pressure. Um, and for most people, they'd go like that. They'd say respiratory rate, blood pressure and heart rate. And honestly, with no equipment and a little bit of training, um, anybody can actually detect all three of those things. Um, you know, just instantly, you know, coming up to a patient, um, you know, doing capillary refill on the extremities, listening to the heart for a second, or even feeling a pulse, and then keeping your hand on the chest to uh, feel for breathing. Um, and so that's why it's it's vital. You absolutely, it's the absolute minimum that you need in order to be alive. Now, in a hospital, we have a couple additional settings that we check fairly regularly and that we consider important. So the additional couple vitals in a hospital include, well, these days, they always say pain is, you know, the fifth vital sign. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other one I was thinking of was temperature. That's true. Um, harder to um, actually detect uh, just like with your hands and eyes and stuff. But yes, very important. Yeah. So it got me thinking, you know, when did we first decide to measure temperature in general? And that actually got me thinking about old gum commercials because mm-hmm. if you recall, this is going to be a little a little beyond some of yours time, but if you recall, <laughs> the inside of your mouth is mm. a sweltering jungle, a steamy <laughs> 98.6 degrees, but the inside of this random brand uh, gum mouth yeah. is tastes much, much cooler. <laughs> Wow, you are you're definitely reaching back. There's a point uh, to all this. <laughs> it was a commercial for winter fresh gum. I was very much a product of advertising. But there is a point to all this, Santosh, because mm. I think it was pretty commonly accepted then and even now that if I ask you, what's the average human body temperature? Yeah, that's the it's the very classic, right? Ninety eight point five, most people will say. Oh, so close. You Enough? don't go. I hope you don't go on the prices right. It's ninety eight point six. Did you just uh, outbid me by like you know one point, cent? One cent. Yeah, one cent. There you go. One <laughs> you degree. That, uh, you know what? Everybody hates you when you do that one cent. <laughs> although, although technically, you are a little bit closer to being right because even though 98.6 degrees is the commonly accepted standard temperature, mm-hmm. it's just not true. That is not what the average temperature of today's uh, American, at least, and quite probably human, um, are really kind of walking around as. And sure. and let's get into a little bit of history. We can jump in our, our way back machine. Yay! I love the Wayback Machine. Uh, So we're going to travel back briefly to 1851 in Germany when Mm. a doctor by the name of Karl Wunderlich, Wunderlich. living in the city of Leipzig. Leipzig, Uh uh-huh. Don't start with me on pronunciation. It's too (laughs) early in the episode. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
determined that the average human body temperature was 98.6 degrees entirely incidentally. He wasn't even trying to find that out. And this has been with us from all the way back in the 1800s till today. So how did he arrive at this number? It's a massive text, actually, if anybody wants to read it. I actually have it downloaded on my computer, the original um, treatise by Wunderlich. But he just genuinely, he had to have a standardized thermometer, which was not common in those days at all. And well, before we get to his tools, Santosh, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. let's get to his reasons. Oh, sure. I mean, this is the guy who literally wrote the book on taking your temperature. Right. <laughs> he did. It's a massive text. You know, founded or one of the, the founding fathers of the field of thermometry, which is a field I bet you didn't know existed until I just said <laughs> it. I, I love that, that people are learning that right now. Yes, you can. So thermometry is not measuring people's temperatures. It's actually the field of accurately calibrating a thermometer and learning how to properly and accurately measure a temperature. And Josh, this is still actually an ongoing field, um, which is, it's kind of like saying, you know, like how long actually is an inch, you know, defining that kind of thing, or how, how long is a second or a minute. Um, so you're kind of genuinely figuring out if you have the right instrument, if it's calibrated properly, if it uh, detects what you want it to detect and doesn't have any false uh, readings. It's, it's a really, really fun field for a super nerd. So, he had, in order to be able to come up with these average numbers, he had to have a lot of data. So what was his reason? Well, initially, he recognized that sometimes people could be hot or not, and not in a sure. physical way. Well, in a very physical way, <laughs> but not in an attractiveness way. And, yeah. and he decided that, or it was his opinion at the time, that if you could track these temperatures of people that it might clue you into a disease like some diseases might continue to go up and up and up and then gradually come down with uh improvement others might spike daily others might move in circular fields which is not necessarily wrong we do see cyclical fevers in diseases like malaria mm -hmm. as well as occasional just spiking fevers in things as common as, you know, inflammation from cold. Before we had a kind of useful and fully ubiquitous antipyretics, there was kind of an art to reading the pattern of a fever. And you could read it kind of in its natural state because there wasn't stuff like Tylenol or Motrin kind of pushing the fever down. So you could actually get closer to your diagnosis by saying, oh, is this a fast spiking fever? Is it a slow onset? Is it very stable? Is it intermittent? And so it was. It turned out to be a really, really good metric. But of course, Josh, as you said, before you understand that real fever part, you got to know what's not a fever. And yes. Okay. So he began over the course of something like 20 or 30 years he took over a million temperatures from over 25,000 patients in the city of Leip Leipzig. Leipzig. <laughs> uh, he took temperatures of everyone he could find, whether they were healthy, sick, 
uh, fat, tall, short, thin, fashionable, hot, not, whatever. He wrote a huge book on all his findings of temperature variation with illness, and it highlighted that there were variations between people of different sexes, ages, weights, heights. And in fact, he found the upper limit of the average person across all these measurements to be 100.4, which gave us the very first definition still in use today for fever. Yeah. So, uh, and by the way, Josh. 38 38 degrees for those of you not in the U.S. (laughs) There you go. I I think... Well, you know, the, this in this case, the centigrade is so much more useful because it's really easy to remember just a simple, straightforward thing like 38. You know, and you just cut it off and say, oh, that's it. It's, it's 38 degrees. And it's really important to me in my field specifically because there are so many times, especially in pediatrics, where... Someone said, oh, they're having fevers, they're having fevers, they're having fevers. And you actually check the temperature regularly and you find out that they're having temperatures of 100, 100.3, which especially for a little kid that you can either bundle or they can get really super hot just running around and having a fun time. It's really important to show them, hey, that's not a fever. Let's, Let's get into now a little bit more of the methodology, because as we said, we're still using his definitions today. And frankly, the part of the reason nobody else has done this kind of research since is that how are you going to compete with over a million measurements taken over 30 years? And that's <laughs> that's a lot of info considering, one, it was you know written down by hand and it was obtained from axillary temperatures taken no more than twice daily. It, it was just really relentless you know, time and time and time again, and really, how can you compete with that? Oh, the truth is, Josh, as good as it is to have these, you know, large data sets and everything, I'd say it is important from time to time to always recheck our kind of um, basic assumptions. Well, I'm glad you said that, Santosh, because there are a couple of scientists rechecking, and it turns out that uh, we're a lot cooler than we thought. Ooh. And yeah, by, I thought so too. <laughs> and and by cooler, I mean the average human body temperature is no longer 98.6 degrees. And in fact, human <laughs> body temperatures have been slowly decreasing for decades. <gasps> oh my God, dude. That's why they called themselves that. The, the, the boy band. The what? The boy band. 98 degrees? Yes. Because they're humans. Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I just got that. You just saw the beginning of an episode idea, folks. <laughs> right in front of you. <laughs> Sometimes it's, uh, it just pops up. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm so sorry. You're right. That looks like there was a good, solid recheck done. Um, tell the people about it. So the recent study was conducted by researchers at Stanford, and it's been published in the online journal eLife, which I think is uh, 
it's not peer reviewed yet, right? E-Life is the difference from uh, others is it's purely open source. So there's no paywalls, nothing like that. Highly, highly reputable and peer reviewed journal um, that only takes some of the most impactful basic science biomedical research. It's on par with like Cell. Um, and it was actually established uh, originally by a great Nobel Prize winner, Randy Sheckman, who's a graduate of our alma mater, UCLA. Not the Randy Sheckman. No, the Randy Sheckman. Yeah. Well, I'll be. <laughs> this study determines that the average body temperature of Americans is actually closer to 97.5 degrees Fahrenheit more than a degree lower than what most of us has believed. This is also equivalent to a British study that was done recently that measured about 33,000 people across the UK and also showed temperature is not 98.6. It's a little bit closer to, again, 98. Uh, so they run a little warmer than us. Uh, it also showed, uh, the Stanford study also showed that our body temperatures, not only are they you know, a degree lower than we thought they were, but they've been consistently dropping since the 1970s at about 0. 0.05 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> wow. I love it. <laughs> now, I will say, Josh, the uh, this being said, what the normal is, um, we should also follow the rest of Dr. Wunderlich's um, kind of ideas and everything that showed our diurnal variation, like how our temperatures rose and fell throughout the day, as well as temperature cycles that, um, for instance, women go through as they go through the menstrual period. And uh, men actually do have the same kind of cycle, although it's not as kind of obvious. So there, there's definitely, you can plot kind of a normal, but it actually is an average that our body temperature kind of moves around throughout the day. And yeah, we'll, we'll go all the way up to like a hundred degrees when it's, when we're at our hottest. Um, and then, uh, you know, as low as like, even like 37.2, which is like 98.9 degrees, um, or, or sorry, in the Mark. summer, summer, <laughs> summer, summer time. It'd Mark. be 100 degrees in the Caribbean seas with the hot mommies screaming, Ay, papi! Interestingly, though, Josh, I think it is important that the definition of what a fever is, um, that, that mark off of saying, oh, we should look for sickness because of a fever, really, it still sits at, you know, higher than 38 degrees for more than an hour. Um, or, you know, um, 38.5 or above with a single temperature. And I think that, yeah, that time is fairly important. When you're looking at low-grade fevers, it is important that they be persistent. Uh, you know, a single reading of 103, yeah, I'm going to be concerned. A single reading of 100, meh, check it again in like 15 minutes. Right. <laughs> Exactly right. And often I will say, Josh, that uh, as you know, one clinician to another, it is a big deal also to just look at your patient at the same time. You know, a, a sick appearing patient, you know, someone who's feeling uncomfortable and ill with, you know, a fever is much more worrisome than if the person looks well and happy and they're, they're feeling well despite the fever. Well, let's dive into this Stanford study and see if its results are as uh, wonderful as Wonderlicks. 
<laughs> yes, please. So they looked at three different population groups across time periods. Uh, one, recording the temperatures of Civil War veterans from the mid-1800s through 1930. And they mm-hmm. also did a separate study where they followed within that group their agents. They, they looked at the cohort of these of temperatures taken from these same people because they had access to the records. Cool. Uh, the second group was more slightly more recent data from the 1970s, and that was recorded by the CDC. Okay. And the third and final group was temperatures of patients visiting Stanford Health Clinics from 2007 to 2017. Okay. All right. So we're still, you know, we should say it's going to be then people European descent by and large and folks here in the United States. So we, we're going through time, but not really spanning like the full geography of the globe or something like that. Sure. Uh, okay. But notably, the data from all of these studies, every arm, showed that average human body temperatures had dropped across the board since Dr. Wunderlich's study in 1851. Now, right. a few of the things they did find, a lot of his findings were largely confirmed. Um, interestingly, temperature was directly related to weight and inversely related to height. Taller people, despite being closer to the sun, usually have uh, temperatures. <laughs> okay. Similarly, whether or not fat is a good insulator, people who are heavier, whether from muscle, bone, whatever is causing you to carry that extra weight, uh, are also likely to have a higher average baseline temperature. Yeah. So this is probably, Josh, um, a little bit a little more closely related to the, you know, the biological square cubed law. So the relationship of the body surface area to its volume. And we know this uh, not just across humans, but also across other mammals as well, that the rate at which we, you know, are able to conserve or lose heat is really, really dependent on that ratio of how your volume, your body volume changes with respect to your body surface area. Um, and interestingly, just outside of medicine, but into biology, this is one of the things that actually puts limits on how big or small a mammal can be. Because if you're way, way too tiny, you're just like, the surface area is way too big for the amount of body volume. So you'll just like lose all your heat and die. It's actually something that NASA uses a lot, too, and they like to doodle about what might aliens look like. You can kind of set, based on known laws of physics, you can kind of come up with rough shapes for what is capable of existing. Oh, cool. I love that. Exobiology. We'll need to know that when we're on Mars. As you mentioned, there is a known relationship between hour of the day and higher temperature, with temperature increasing on average uh, let's give something to the metric system, folks, by about mm-hmm. 0.02 degrees Celsius for every hour of the day um, mm-hmm. as it gets later. The month of the year had a pretty much small, insignificant effect on temperature in all three cohorts with no consistent pattern, but it does get hotter a little bit throughout the day, you know, until it stops. Um, also, younger people have higher temperatures compared to older people. You cool down mm. as you age. That's why young people are such <laughs> hotheads. Aha! As, as you mentioned, Santosh, we could make a few inferences or arguments against some of these studies uh, or against some of the study results. 
Uh, for example, you could say, if we were to be generous and diplomatic, U.S. residents since the mid-19th century, on average, have increased in mass. Yeah. So <laughs> You're being very kind, but sure. <laughs> and therefore, you would correspondingly expect, on average, across the nation, an increased body temperature, that it would be higher than 98.6, right? Therefore, yeah. you have to look at the finding of a decrease in body temperature rather than being dependent on an actual body shape. So independent of changes in another fun field to say anthropometrics. <laughs> uh, instead, this indicates that what we're seeing is an overall decrease in the metabolic rate, which is an analog to our, our body temperature. Right. Yeah. It's uh, what we're actually looking at when we have the temperature. And this is why these are vital signs, temperature, heart rate, um, blood pressure, respiratory rate. What you're actually seeing is an aggregate of a lot of different you know, bodily functions at the cellular level, at the molecular level that all keep us alive. So, you know, respiratory rate, you know, how well is that those little tiny things of oxygen actually making it into the lung across the, you know, the lung blood barrier, you know, in, going to the organs where they need to. And same thing with temperature, you're taking an aggregate of a bunch of different functions and then shoving them into a single metric. There could be a decrease in the metabolic rate as we've gotten larger. So independent of body size, we're simply, we're post-industrial revolution. Our lives on the whole compared to those of our ancestors are vastly easier. Um, mm -hmm. So we simply <laughs> don't need to expend as much energy to accomplish the same things. Another thought, when Wunderlich obtained his measurements, the life expectancy in the era was around 38 years old, which means, oh, wow. I should have been dead for about two years by now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, the way I eat, I think I may have made it to 20. I would have been so happy to make it to 20. And untreated chronic infections like tuberculosis, syphilis, and even just periodontitis affected large proportions of the population. So, of course, if you're walking around in a constant state of fever from fighting <laughs> off multiple chronic infections, this may well have influenced the normal body temperature by which he created his metric. Uh, so they even... You know, did did the Stanford study look at this? No, but a little bit of a perusal through the research shows you that a very small study of healthy volunteers from Pakistan, which is mm -hmm. a country that has a continued high incidence of chronic infections like tuberculosis, does show temperatures that are a little bit more approximate to the values reported by Wunderlich. So people in Pakistan, on average, have a temperature closer to 98.6 degrees, whereas we here in America, with a different level of availability of antibiotics, are mm -hmm. running a little bit cooler. You know, certainly, Josh, you're mentioning antibiotics. Um, even uh, before that, you know, when you get to needing to treat an infection, everything else that goes into keeping us healthy, so vaccination, sanitation, hand washing, these are all huge factors that influence that as well and, and kind of allow us to not need to kind of burn through our energy in order to just stay alive. Um, there is an extreme version of this 
where if you have an immunocompromised person, if you have a person, for instance, our, you know, uh, our, our friends and patients with HIV, if you're still constantly fighting off those infections, but you're not able to appropriately, you need to somehow burn energy to get through this. So your temperature is going to go up. Because you're constantly going to be fighting much harder than the average person, even the normal viral infections that pass through all the time. And that is going to lead to what we see, again, like tuberculosis, also with HIV, uh, wasting. You actually, that's, that's why they called it the consumption, Josh. You consume. Our resting metabolic rate, for <laughs> which our body temperature is a very crude analog, uh, can also be infected by things like air conditioning see when uh well well, hear me out yeah our our resting metabolic rate increases when the ambient temperature decreases below or rises above our own individual thermo neutral zone so that's the temperature of the environment the definite is at which you can maintain a normal temperature with minimum energy expenditure remember what i said about modern conveniences well, in the 19th century, homes in the U.S. were irregularly and inconsistently heated and never cooled. But by the 1920s, heating systems had reached a broad segment of the population. If you recall, that's when the influenza epidemic or pandemic also began to affect people leaving their windows open to get fresh air from social distancing and having heating systems that could accommodate open windows throughout the year. Okay, so. Cool. Now you've got heating systems reaching a broad segment of the population with the mean nighttime temperature continuing to increase even in the modern era. Global warming also contributes to this. And with air conditioning found in over 85% of U.S. homes, the amount of time that the population has spent in largely climate control has increased. Therefore, we have a decrease in our resting metabolic rate and by extension, our body temperature. Very cool. Yeah, technology, definitely, you know, how we shelter and then our exposure, our regular exposure to infections, how hard we have to fight. Um, Probably, Josh, food availability too. Like, are are we actually able to generate that heat? You know, a person who's in starvation, for instance, um, and which was probably much more prevalent back then you know, they're, they're going to have a lower temperature as well. So lots of things coming all the way around um, to affect this, this one vital sign. Now that we've had a chance to talk about why we've established temperature as vital, let's talk about how it was measured. You know, who, who... Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause this is the most important thing, right? Um, a lot of why we came to this kind of a big study in the 1850s is because the the folks like Fahrenheit, yeah, the the actual guy <laughs> where we named the scale after, they had to actually come up with a normalized temperature system and then have the right tools in order to measure it accurately. That those were huge leaps in technology. Well, before the earliest way to measure temperature was something called a thermoscope, and it only showed that the temperature was changing, uh, but it didn't show numerical values. It was the equivalent of warmer, warmer, (laughs) no, cooler, getting colder, (laughs) colder, Uh, Uh and it was invented by uh, Galileo Galilei. You know, he... 
<laughs> he threw his temp up in the air sometimes, saying "ayo, Galileo." <laughs> uh, so it used basically water as the liquid and glass bulbs in an open tube, and the bulbs each had different amounts of liquids in them, and they rose and fell with changes in temperature. And the lowest bulb is what the temperature. Then early 1600s roll along. 16 in 1612, Italian inventor Santorio Santorio, the <laughs> the man so nice they named him twice. <laughs> no, no, he's a Santorio Santorio. <laughs> oh, San, I feel like it was just a mispronunciation. So your name's huh. Antonio? No, Santorio Antonio Santorio Santorio. Oh, Italian inventor Santorio Santorio. Santorio. No, no, that's not. (laughs) He invented the first crude clinical thermometer called the mouth thermometer. uh, Mm. And it was bulky, inaccurate, and took well over 45 minutes to an hour to get a reading. Um, In 1654... You had the first sealed thermometer developed by the Grand Duke of Tuscany. So a lot of this was taking place in Italy. And it had alcohol again and a numerical (laughs) scale, but still wasn't terribly accurate. So when we finally got to the Fahrenheit scale, the more modern thermometer invented in 1709. Here's some fun bar trivia. Uh, What was Fahrenheit's first name? Because he's a temperature kind of guy. Uh, Cal. Oh, actually, that would have been good, but no, just Dan- <laughs> Daniel. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> Daniel's you know, a good name. It feels it feels a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? I suppose so. Yeah, I was hoping for something. <laughs> he was made fun of. Uh, oh, Cal, Cal, you like calories? <laughs> because all right, brief digression. You yeah. know, separate from our usuals, Kelvin was developed by Lord Kelvin, who was also British physicist William Thompson. Good change. I don't know if I would have been as impressed by the Thompson scale. But yeah, probably. Anyway. Yeah, the, the Fahrenheit scale is a much nice, yeah. Uh, anyway, Daniel Fahrenheit, 1709, developed an enclosed glass tube, the Fahrenheit scale, that also contained alcohol, but he, in 1714, developed a mercury thermometer that could be measured to the same degree of accuracy on the same scale. So he assigned arbitrarily the extreme ends of the scale to be the freezing point of water, which he said 32 degrees, and then Mm -hmm. 180 away from it, the boiling point of water as 212. Just randomly picked them, said, freezing is now 32. That's, That's what I'm calling this. And 180 degrees away, that's how long I want my scale to be, is what I'm going to say water boils at. So he, and yeah. the normal body temperature was supposed to sit roughly smack in the middle, a little bit closer to boiling water than freezing ice was a mm-hmm. hundred degrees. Cause remember 98.6 wasn't decided yet, not till 1851. Sure, sure. So 32, 100, 212, and the scale could move between the three. Oh, um, I, I love it. I, and that's why, you know, people say, oh, why not just be centigrade? It's zero to 100. It's super easy and all that kind of a thing. But like, really, if you say that, like, you can put the human temperature, right? So the scale temperature right there at, you know, 100, so much easier to remember than, come on, Josh, 38, 37. I mean, what, 
random ass numbers of those. Just like Fahrenheit, they're arbitrary ones. All thermometers <laughs> are based off arbitrary decisions. They <laughs> <laughs> were, and you know, interestingly enough, we're trying to kind of normalize these and, and figure out more kind of universal measures of temperature and calorie and all that kind of a thing. Um, it, we're finding it difficult to completely conform to you know, these exact numbers and that's why we're ending up with you know 0.4s and 0.6s now even though we had more accurate scales uh, we still really weren't using them a lot medically so when did you start moving from the standard outdoor or scientific thermometer to a medical thermometer well santosh you told me about this guy and you were just so tickled to be able (laughs) to be able to say this so so please take us to the next rapid advancement in medical science so no such thing as a fish trivia panel show uh, over at the bbc in england and this fact came up because every week they do four facts of four of their favorite facts a lot of them are science-based the person and, and by the way they had attributed this to like the invention of the rectal thermometer the guy's name (laughs) was a uh, inventor and a physician named sir thomas Allbutt. (laughs) and what he actually did was he figured out a form factor for the thermometer where you could more much more conveniently measure the rectal which is much closer to the core temperature of a human being so he did not look at the thermometer and think I really like this tool, but I need to figure out how to shove it up somebody's butt. Um, he yeah. invented, most thermometers of the day were, you know, could be held under the tongue. But again, they were most thermometers. When you had your temperature taken, it was axillary, which is you're trying to measure your core temperature through several layers of skin by holding it in a sweaty pit. Mm-hmm. Um and this could take up to 20 minutes. You know, you need enough time to really fidget there uncomfortably. But Sir Thomas Allbutt, not half butt, not quarter butt, used... <laughs> the he, all butt, yes. Used his full ass in his projects, invented the first practical medical thermometer used for taking a person's temperature in 1867. It was mm-hmm. portable six inches in length and able to record a patient's temperature in five minutes. Now think about where you're going to be comfortable holding something six inches in length for five minutes. And it will (laughs) rapidly become apparent that while this was much better than 20 minutes and while his design was later slimmed down and made a bit more effective, I am sorry to burst your all bubble but yeah, tell you that while he invented the medical thermometer, he did not invent the rectal, although it did strongly influence the design. <laughs> it's it's very, very fair. And, you know, these these types of beautiful coincidences don't come along too often. So I'm not too surprised that this one didn't land square. But, you know. Now, that's not to say I'm, that I'm the all-butt thermometer was not used rectally, Sure. simply that that was not its intended purpose. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And and that does bring up the question of really when did rectal temps become well popular I think is a bit of a stretch but when did they become more common? Uh I'm not entirely sure because we're still, you know, we had 1851 going all the way to Wunderlich and he was using, you know, rather cumbersome scales and thermometers and that kind of a thing. Um, and then, you know, uh, Thomas Alba, 1836. So he was actually, you know, he was 20 something or, uh, at least no, sorry, maybe 15 when Wunderlich, uh, published his stuff. So he was coming into the knowledge of like, Oh, we can measure human temperature. Um, he invented his in 1867. Um, it would have to take a little bit longer, right? Because to actually make the right size thermometer and everything, how about like 1920s? Well, while that's entirely possible, uh, at least documentation of rectal temps largely seems to have come into widespread use shortly before or during the Second World War, which I guess makes oh, sense. Gotcha. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. because, you know, I, I know I'd feel a great depression if I had to have my temperature taken. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Just for funsies. Rectal thermometers are often colored cherry red to differentiate them from oral or axillary thermometers, and they tend to have a shorter, squat, pear, or stubby bulb shape uh, and are not meant to be used interchangeably with other types of thermometers, which is the cause for some of these more interesting design. And you also keep in mind that mercury is a little bit of a dangerous liquid. You don't just want casually floating around the body. So. The mercury thermometer, certainly for rectal, but uh, was adapted so it could be taken out of the body to read the temperature. Um, And it was modified by placing in the glass tube a sharp bend narrower than the rest of the tube, which meant you could keep the temperature reading in place after you had removed the thermometer from the patient by creating a break in the mercury column. Uh, And that is why, for those of you who still remember in you know the pre-digital era that's why you have to shake a medical thermometer a mercury one before and after you use it to reconnect the mercury and get the thermometer to room temperature yeah yeah that's that was a little bit of a thing and you know they were all in glass so you had to be really careful where you were shaken Um, but it's funny because just how things kind of pass on historically and stuff to this day josh People will still, if they have the alcohol thermometers, which is, I know it's much less common than it used to be when we were kids, they would still shake that one. They'd shake the alcohol one um, to get the, um, you know, again, they you, you, theoretically are getting the fluid back down to the bottom of the bulb. But I, I remember even before we have the, the probes in the hospital that we have t- in, in today, when we have the independent ones, I remember even my ma. Um, you know, when checking my temperature and stuff when I was in, you know, grade school and things like that with the digital thermometers, she'd still do that just out of habit. I mean, these things are hard to break. And finally, because I know you're wondering, okay, well, how did we get from mercury rectal thermometers to the guns they point, you know, the little ear guns they point at our foreheads today? (laughs) Which, Which, by the way, it's it's security theater and nothing else. So dumb. I just, I mean, now that we're, now that we're coming out of the pandemic, or at yes. least getting that much closer with the CDC announcing kind of the, the lifting of masks as long as you're vaccinated. 
I, I can say that from the beginning, I have felt that the scanning somebody for temperature, regardless of the method, <laughs> has not yeah. been in any way, shape, or form a reliable indicator of whether you are too sick to be able to enter. It's done. Yeah. It is there. It's pure theater. It's, it's gorgeous. Now, if you genuinely do scan a surface temperature of, you know, 100.5 or higher, you, you've got to be thinking about, Josh, that, you know, the core temperature is probably much, much higher. <laughs> that person's already like sick and dying. But just to make it even weirder, it looks like, it, you know, it's fully understood by the makers of these, you know, radar guns, these laser guns, um, that it doesn't read temperature accurately. And there's often times where if you just collected the temperature off the infrared gun, it would read something ridiculous, like, you know, 35 degrees or something like that. <laughs> because maybe you just came in out of a, like a, a Chicago winter, right, Josh? But so they've introduced software to actually kind of self-correct the temperature anyway, which means sometimes even when it like registers high, it will correct down and you won't even get it. Dude, I, as much as such a racket, as much as, as much as the stun gun, the tricorder is complete and utter bull plop. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I will tell you the original technology it is based on is highly accurate. And I am, of course, referring to the original ear thermometer developed by naval research, naval medical researcher, Dr. Theodore H. Benzinger. Now, he studied temperature regulation and helped create the field of biothermodynamics in which he holds over 40 patents. But the most famous, he developed in 1964, the ear thermometer. And he had been very interested in how the body maintains its narrow range of temperature and the deviations between fever and hypothermia. So the reason he came up with the idea of the ear thermometer is he said, this is where the barrier between the inside and outside of our skulls is thinnest. And Mm -hmm. you can get a reading as close as possible to the brain temperature, which regulates the core body. And it's found in the hypothalamus at the base of the brain, and since the hypothalamus and eardrum share blood vessels, he came up with the brilliant idea to use the ear canal with its thin tympanic membrane to take a reading. Yeah, and this is a great approach in adults, um, by and large, because the ear canal is nice and big. You do have to make sure that there is not impacted cerumen, because in order to read the core temperature, you really do have to get a uh, an infrared beam to reflect off of the tympanic membrane. So the, the eardrum also has to be intact. Um, I do, Josh, get a lot of complaints. Uh, well, sorry, I personally have a lot of complaints against the use of this one in children. Because when kids are growing up, especially when they're very little, the external ear canal is quite convoluted and it's next to impossible to get that infrared beam to actually bounce off of the eardrum. This vital sign was strongly influenced throughout the years by guys in Germany who really just wanted to accurately measure how hot something was. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's... 
there are some times where, you know, it's wonderful to have the biomedical background and everything and, you know, approach it from that side. But the other folks who come over from the engineering background, right, and do thermometry, sometimes you, you come up with things just, you know, not worrying about like the practicalities and whatever of the human body. Just like, I just want to figure out how stuff is measured. You just, you know, you figure out how to adapt this to a human. That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to several of the sources used in researching this episode. And until next time, as always, and I get to contract this so much because now... Look at all the things that have been lifted. Anyway. <laughs> oh, oh, by the way, sorry, Josh, just to let everybody know, this is in the United States. So for our, our international listeners, please do follow, you know, your uh, whatever national, state, local health advisories, please. Yada, yada, yada. And <laughs> that's it. So until next week, and I get to say the abbreviated version now for our American listeners. Yes, yes. And anywhere else they've lifted restrictions. But uh, mm -hmm. wash your hands, get your shot, and get ready to have some happy travels. Yay! Yeah, yeah, there's so many places we can go soon. I'm excited. I mean, but when you go pack a mask, better safe than sorry. Oh, please. Yeah, yeah. Bye, guys. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.